0: So it's great to be with you this morning, whether you're with us online today or joining us in a familiar seat or maybe wandering in and trying this place for the very first time. I hope already today you have found um, God touching you, encouraging you, inspiring you, reassuring you, whatever the need might be. I hope that uh, you have felt the Lord um, loving on you today in this place. Uh, This is a special, uh, significant time I know in many families uh, I know that Amy and I, like a whole bunch of you, will be uh, devoting some of our time tomorrow to attending to the little munchkins that move through our neighborhood. And I have been so committed to this particular venture coming up, I have been pre-testing some of the candy <laughs> just to make sure it's going to be okay. I would recommend that you do the same. Just make sure you want good stuff going out to those, to those kids. But I, I honestly thought back to... Um, our very first halloween as a family after we moved here from san diego it was 1997 and we had a five-year-old and an 18-month-old at the time and uh amy took the first shift at home and i took our two little kids out the five-year-old trundling along and the 18-month-old i think we had in a wagon at the time and i remember getting to a particular house and uh we we rang the doorbell and the door opened up and there is standing this young father with this really cheery expression on his face. And uh, our kids say, trick or treat. And he says, oh, very great to see you all. And And he reached into a bag and he pulled out one of these big honking old fashioned candy bars. You remember those? Some of you will remember those and drops it into the bucket that my five-year-old has. That's for you, young man, he said. And then he looks at my 18-month-old and he reaches in and he grabs something else that's appropriate and puts it in his little bucket and said, that's, that's, that's for you, I hope you enjoyed that. And then he looks at me and he reaches behind the door and he rustles around in something and he pulls something out and he said, that's for you, daddy, he hands me a Heineken beer. <laughs> and I thought, I am gonna like living in the Midwest. You know, for all of the, of the bad rap that Halloween sometimes get, gets, and you know, there are some associations with Halloween that uh, can be kind of dark. And, uh, and, and I, I, think I understand the concern. I've actually preached in the past on some of the darker associations. But I have to say, there is a light that shines in the darkness at Halloween. And that light that shines in the darkness is the light of generosity. And I saw it on the face of that father uh, that particular night. And I hope that a lot of us both see it and reflect something of that light uh, in these days to come. You know, there is probably no virtue, no character trait that is more like God than the character trait of generosity. Uh, That really is the truth. If you think about it, God's kind of core character trait (laughs) is, is generosity. Think about it. He's... Sort of before it all comes together, before life exists at all, God is, poetically speaking, living in the most magnificent uh, domicile imaginable. I mean, just an amazing place full of light and beauty and and life. He's, he's, uh, He's able to just enjoy himself. He has no need for anything but himself. He's in conversation for all eternity with these glorious angels. He's just, it's a good life that God has. And he could so easily have just let that life be his own. Um, But he does not. He does not. He makes the voluntary choice to go beyond himself, to to extend himself, to bring blessing and grace to others. Uh, God, in effect, goes out and he creates a neighborhood to bless. We call that neighborhood the universe. And, and, and God creates this vast, spectacular uh, neighborhood. And then, and then on one of the little dust motes floating through the cosmos, he decides to give a very extra special kind of blessing. And, and he establishes life and lavishes all kinds of glories upon just that one little planet. I mean, we're not talking about just giving um, away little mini Milky Ways. We're talking about giving away just the, the vast stellar systems we, that, that we are now able to see in glory and glory in through our technologies. Uh, God gives a, an amazing variety of splendor to this life. He, he pours out massive bowls of blessing, particularly upon this, this earth that we inhabit. And he endows it with flora and fauna of every conceivable kind. And he gives us these succulent tastes and flavors and smells. And he provides uh, shapes and topographies of every uh, kind. He just, it's this wow of glory and splendor and variety. He could have made it all gray. That would have been just an act of blessing itself, just to create things gray. And yet he chooses to create things in technicolor. And then he gives to one particular form of life on that little planet. The capacity to love and to learn and to laugh and to create as he does. He gives us something of his image and his likeness and and gives human beings this amazing ability... To, to be like him, so much so that they could, at least on the last uh, day of October every year, get up from their couches and, and go out and bless others as sort of a reflection of his nature, of his core uh, virtue. I want to suggest to you that we are seldom so like God as when we're being generous. When we don't have to get off the comfy couch, when we don't have to answer the door, when we don't have to prepare for what's to come, when we don't actually have to open it and smile and pour out blessing, we're never so much like him as when we do not have to do these things, we choose to extend uh, grace. I think that's... why the story that we're going to read today from the book of Kings in the Old Testament is particularly disturbing. (laughs) It's in light of this core impulse, this this better angel in us that that comes from God's image and likeness in us, it's in light of that that the story we're going to read today should shake us up, should really make us think uh, together. And if you're just joining us today, um, we have been walking our way through the, uh, the first book of Kings in the Old Testament. We've been studying the story of a king named Ahab and a queen named Jezebel. who uh, Ahab's a Jewish king, Jezebel is a Sidonian or a Phoenician king. Uh, Uh, Royal that is now married into the Jewish family. And the two of them have been leading the nation of Israel on this wild escapade away from a belief and a followership towards the God of Israel, the ancient God, the one God of Israel and all of his character, towards a devotion to a lot of godlets, to a lot of little idols uh, that are about, you know, satisfying pretty base appetites and little tribal interests. And the nation has been on a slide because of this. They have been turning degree by degree by degree towards these other gods. And Ahab and Jezebel have been fomenting this uh, big shift in the nation's life. And uh, the things have gotten so bad that God has raised up a messenger, a voice to to challenge the way things are going. And and that voice is is a prophet we call uh, Elijah. And we've been looking at the story of Elijah. And if you've not... Uh, been part of the series so far. You might want to go back, catch some of the past episodes online, and uh, you'll find there's just practical life lessons in every single one of these studies for, for your life and for mine. And I want to just try and impart today a few more practical pointers. Uh, we've got a couple of weeks of this study uh, to go. So let me take us to 1 Kings chapter 21, and at the first verse, we read it as follows Sometime later, there was an incident involving. A vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is that um, every, almost every word and phrase is chock full of history and meaning if we really understand it and unpack it. And I want to unpack just that single verse for you a little bit. Um, so, the, one of the important details that's being revealed for us in this particular verse is that Ahab is a ruler from a mountain city called Samaria. Uh, he, he rules over the nation of Israel from a mountain city called Samaria. Now Samaria is highly associated in ancient times with the worship of the gods Baal and Ashtaroth and Asherah, some of these pagan gods that, that, um, that Ahab and Jezebel are, are into and leading people towards. Uh, and which is why Ahab's not called the king of Israel, even though that's his real t- He's called the king of Samaria because uh, the writer wants us to get the fact that he is a supporter of all this stuff that's happening uh, there in Samaria, and uh, that's his normal MO to rule from this beautiful mountain palace in Samaria. But like a lot of people here in this congregation, he also has a winter residence. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a place to go when it gets too cold up in the mountains. And that winter residence is in a place called Jezreel, which is down in the, in the valley country. Uh, it's not far from the Mediterranean. And uh, there, it's just much more temperate during the colder months. Um, so think of Samaria as like Denver, and uh, Jezreel is sort of like Palm Springs or Naples. And you've got, got, got the picture. Well, apparently King Ahab is, uh, is down in uh, Palm Springs or Naples and, and he kind of looks over t- across the fence and he realizes there's a pretty nice piece of property right next door. And he thinks to himself, boy, it'd be nice to have that, right? It'd be nice to have that. So Ahab said to Naboth, who owns that property, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. What's the defining characteristic of the vineyard in his mind? It's close to my palace. He sees things entirely from his frame of reference. Um, in exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. Now, you can hear between the lines here that, that uh, Ahab is pretty used to getting what he wants. Um, he, he is pretty confident that the offer he's making is one that's going to work out well for him. He's a little bit like one of those robber barons that we meet in the old Western movies. You know, he goes to the farmer and says, uh, i tell you what, I'll give you a little, I'll give you this money for, for your land. And, and he's really confident that the farmer is going to take the deal. And, and the farmer knows that if he doesn't take the deal, the, the robber baron has got so much power, it could be like unless Clint Eastwood shows up, he's going to be in serious trouble. Right? This is kind of how Ahab is looking at this conversation with, with Naboth. The text says, but Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now, There's a lot in that verse. There's a lot that's under the surface of that. This is not just any piece of property for Naboth. Okay? You don't get a sense that Naboth's got tons of real estate. This isn't just, you know, like one of his holdings. This property really means something to Naboth. Um, this is like Yellowstone Ranch to the Dutton family, right? This is, this is what that property means to, to Naboth. Um, Naboth's people have been on this property forever. The, this vineyard is a treasured inheritance as far, far as he's concerned. By the way, in scripture, vineyards are often regarded as sort of symbols of God's enduring provision. Of his gracious provision for people. One of Jesus' most famous parables is called the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. And the characteristic of the vineyard that's, is that it's been so carefully set up by the owner. That the tenants really just get to enjoy mainly the produce of the land. So a vineyard is a symbol of this generous God that provides really well in an enduring way uh, for his people. A vegetable garden, on the other hand, is something different. A vegetable garden is a property that is kind of more like a temporary asset. It comes and it goes. It's something that takes a lot of work to keep going. Some of you know that from your own experience. Uh, And so in Israel's story... Vegetable gardens are associated with difficult places. Vegetable gardens are associated like with Egypt, which was the land of bondage, or with uh, Babylon, which is the land of exile, while vineyards are associated with the promised land, with, with, um, with, the, with the blessings of God. Um, moreover there were these certain lands in Israel which had been especially apportioned to the 12 tribes of Israel as sacred inheritances by God. God had given particular properties to certain families as signs of his deep regard for those families and for their faithfulness to him. And so the fact that that Naboth says The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors is likely a reference to that. To that sense that this this was one of those properties that had belonged to, to, had been given to the 12 tribes. So Naboth is not just being possessive when he says no to Ahab. He's not just being materialistic. He's not being even just traditional. Um, He's actually honoring God. When he says this, he just wants to make sure that this vineyard continues to be used in the way that God had apparently intended. Are you with me so far? So this is what's going on in this little conversation. Now, somehow, even though Ahab also knows the history of Israel, even though he's got access to the same stories and the traditions, he has lost sight of all of this. Um, he, he, his heart has gotten taken over by the, what I would call the dragon of selfishness. And he no longer remembers these wonderful storylines in the history of Israel. And we know that because the text says that when Naboth gives a response, uh, so Ahab went home, sullen and angry Because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And here's the part. Just picture this. He lay on his bed sulking and he refused to eat. (laughs) Just pouting. Right? Have any of you ever seen uh, the movie version or read the book version of, of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Do you remember the, the character of uh, Veronica, S- Veruca Salt? Veruca Salt was her name. Uh, she's one of a bunch of the kids that go into the factory, into Willy Wonka's factory with, with Charlie. And she's the worst of them. Uh, I mean, they're, none of them are impressive. But <laughs> Veruca Salt has got like, he, she had so much compared to little Charlie. She has had so much material blessing in her life. I mean, staggering amounts. But when she can't have everything more she wants, when Willy Wonka won't let her have everything and touch everything and eat everything that she wants, she just throws a hissy fit, shows an absolute tantrum. Ahab is the archetype of that character. And we see those characters a lot in literature and in popular culture. Um, It's the person who has almost everything that money and power can buy. And Ahab certainly is that guy. But he wants more. She wants more. And when they can't have more, they freak out about it. And they become very dark. I think there's a really crucial lesson for this. um, A lesson for us personally, for our kids and families, uh, truly, And the lesson is this, just as there is a special kind of joy that comes upon those who are generous, I think of the face of that dad at the door holding out the Heineken. You know, he was genuinely enjoying doing this. This was fun for him. Just as there's a genuine joy that comes from generosity, so there is also a tragic sort of sadness that comes upon selfish people. Selfishness doesn't really work for us over the long haul. Um, I was reading this week uh, a little essay by a spiritual growth coach by the name of John R. Miles, and he he wrote this. When we align our lives around materialism, when we look to material things to be sort of the biggest source of satisfaction for us, we place wealth over substance, earnings over relationships, Popularity over virtue, the hustle culture over family, and ego over serving others. Uh, look at that list. It's just the reverse of what would actually bring us health and happiness and wholeness, and well-being. And and none of us sort of sets out in life. Oh, I think I'll do that. I think I'll put those things make those things more important. We never start out that way. We always start out with better intentions, but gradually over time, degree by degree by degree, the priorities get kind of inverted in a way that, that, that leads us into a really destructive place in our lives. And we start thinking about uh, material objects as extensions of our identity, and we lose access to who we truly are, or even want to be, says, uh, says Miles. Uh, He goes on to note that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wanting to do creative things with the fruit of our labors. Uh, That's actually a a divine impulse. We're given creativity so that we can shape the world. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that. But we we really need to pause and think, he writes, when our desire for tangible goods isn't driven by adversity, isn't driven by real objective need or lack, but driven by our own inner discontentment in some way. We're becoming more convinced today, he writes, that we can sort of buy our way into happiness. And then this is the quotation that really struck me. We become obsessed with comparing, accumulating, and acquiring instead of creating, helping, and adventuring creating, helping, and adventuring. I was 17, year old, 17 years old. I, I was, um, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was lying on my bed in my room. I still remember that old kind of blue velveteen bedspread I was lying on. And I was depressed. I was in sort of the height of adolescent depression. And I was depressed for a bunch of reasons. Um... I had been given an old beater car by my grandfather and I wanted a nicer one. My friends were getting nicer ones. I wanted a nicer one. I had this old stereo five years ago. It had been state of the art, but it wasn't anymore. And I wanted a newer one and I had my sights on this girl. I really liked her. I would like her to be my girlfriend. I even went to New York city and bought her a really expensive music box and gave it to her convinced it would win her heart and she wasn't interested in the deal. She wasn't buying me. And I was just like in a severe state of of bummage. I was just really down. I was lying there just depressed and feeling sorry for myself. My dad walks in and he sees me in this state and he asks me what's wrong. And I don't tell him. I'm 17. I'm a guy. I'm not going to tell my dad what I'm really feeling and thinking. I just say I'm feeling ah, just kind of down. And he says, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to get up right now. I want you to go... Get in in your car. I want you to drive over to Mount Kisco, to Northern Westchester Hospital. I want you to walk in, go to the nurse's station, and ask if there's anybody here that hasn't been getting any visitors. And then I want you to go visit that person. I didn't always listen to what my dad said, but that day I did. These were the days when you could actually do what I'm describing. Nobody would stop you. And I eventually wound up in the room of this old guy. And um, he had lost both of his feet to diabetes. They had had to take his feet. Um, he had lost his wife several years before. He had no family in the area. And he was going through this terrible health crisis all by himself. And I just sat and talked to him and listened to his life story and shared mine and, and just developed this connection. And uh, we sort of created this bond and we sort of helped each other and it was an adventure, as John Miles would say. And I walked out of that hospital feeling totally differently than, I, than I'd felt when I walked in. Does that make sense to you? Could you see how that would reorient you in life? doing doing things like that. Um, It was a, a profound life lesson for me that particular day. You know, being denied what we want in life invites us to value the things we already have in life. It doesn't always work that way, of course. Sometimes when we're denied, we just get mad. We get more eager to get what we don't have, but, but it, it presents this wonderful invitation, actually, to say, okay, if I can't have that, could I, be, could I learn to enjoy more what I have? Could, could I find greater contentment in the things that I already have? Why do you suppose Ahab couldn't do that? Why couldn't he look into his very well-filled Halloween bucket? and stop obsessing on the candy bar that wasn't yet in there. Why couldn't he do that? In his book, The American Paradox, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty, Hope College psychologist David G. Myers notes this. Compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence, but less happiness and much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology. Now, it's not just a young adult issue. I'm not capping on young adults here at all. Uh, because this isn't actually an issue now for all of us. Maybe young adults feel it acutely because they are tied in so much more pervasively to, the, to all of the media sources that are helping to stoke this kind of, of, of inner sadness They're being presented constantly, but I think a lot of us are, with images and messages about what we don't have, about all the goodies and treats that are in somebody else's Halloween bucket. And all of us are subject to to this and the greed and the envy and the dissatisfaction that it produces. I don't think it's a stretch to say that you and I are living in the midst of the most powerful and pervasive discontentment machine in history. No society and culture has ever faced anything like this before. And it's affecting us. It's it's making us sad in ways that we were not intended to be. And I compare the image there of of me on the the blue bedspread and and, uh, Ahab sulking on his bed. I compare that with the faces of joy at last weekend's For Chicago Land initiative of the church, where like more than 600 of you went out just to serve in neighborhoods and communities round about us and to bless other people uh, when you didn't have to. I I, I think of, of, of the joy that I personally feel when I get to be just a little part of the amazing mission, the movement of love that is Christ Church in this region, around the world, and and how much fun it is to be part of that kind of a movement of God's grace when i think of the heart of jesus who scripture says for the joy set before him endured even the cross for the joy of knowing he was going to make it possible for people to come home to god to find forgiveness if they put their just put their trust in him he was willing to go even to the cross for the joy of knowing what he could make possible for others. When I think of those things, I become convinced that generosity is the antidote to our discontent today. It's probably one of the most profound needs we have in American culture, for sure, today. That's one of the reasons why I just don't think it's ridiculous or even unkind or even particularly burdensome for me to tell you this next story. Some years ago, I was doing a children's message on the Sunday after Halloween. and I had all the kids come forward and sit on the steps of the, of the chancel of the church. And, um, and I told them how happy I was it was Halloween and how, how, how much candy I'd gotten on Halloween, Halloween and how I would love them to have some. And so I gave to each of the kids in the group 10 candies. They were happy about this. They said, I want to come back to this church more often. <laughs> and, uh, and then I said, oh, you know what? I, I, I've, I've remembered there, there's, there's somebody in my neighborhood that doesn't have this kind of blessing. Could I just have one candy back from each of you? I've given you 10, could I just take, could I just have one back? And I, and I will take that and I will use that to help this other family. Not a single kid in the group hesitated for a nanosecond. Please, take it. What happens to us? What happens to us that over the years that we we go from being that childlike, generous, grateful person to becoming a Naboth, or pardon me, an Ahab, you know, what happens to us? What is it about us that struggles even with this idea today when God says bring the, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse? So, an old biblical principle. You know, just take, make sure that at least 10% of what you've been blessed by is being repurposed on a regular basis to, to serve God's purposes in the world. It doesn't have to be the church. It doesn't have to be this church. It can be just the work of God's kingdom in the world. Make sure at least 10, at least one piece out of the 10 you've been given is in motion, is is an act of generosity back towards the needs of the world. And and it's a helpful thing to say, am I giving even a tithe of my resources? The average among evangelical churches is like 2% or less. Am I giving even a tenth, a tithe, towards the the work of God in in the world? And if our answer is, no, I'm actually not, because I need it all, then then is there some need for reflection for us? Um, Are we more like Ahab than we would like to think? I wish that Ahab had a dad like I had. Uh, I, wish that, um, I wish that he had a, a church like we have together. I wish he had a Jesus like, like we have. Uh, somebody that would come to them and sort of shake him up. He had Elijah. Somebody that would help him think, come to his senses, remember his best self. But he didn't have it at that moment. He didn't have it. The Bible goes on to say in verse 5, His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why why won't you eat? And he answered her, because Naboth the Jezreelite said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel said, is this how you act as king over Israel? I thought when I first read that, oh, good. She's saying, you're being immature. Immature. Remember how blessed you are. Go out there. I mean, don't, don't bother that poor Naboth. Get a, go out there and do some good. She's not saying that. She is not saying that. She says to him, get up and eat. Cheer up because I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She feeds him. She, she stokes his selfishness. What follows from this is the kind of story that has defined way too much of human history. And if you've got the stomach, you can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 21. Suffice it to say, it's the story of the horrific damage that gets done by the fire-breathing dragon of selfishness. It's a tale of lying and corruption and manipulation and abuse of power and of my kingdom and my will be done that is so consistent with so many of the events in the public and private spheres today that it would send chills down our spine to read these words. Were they not so consistent, so commonplace today? Jezebel pays to have Naboth set up, to have him framed for stuff that he didn't do She has him brutally murdered for him, for it. I mean, in a horrible way, she has him murdered for it. All under the guise of legitimate law. It's the kind of scenario for which the word injustice was invented. And then life just goes on. As it too often goes on today with injustice. But, the Bible says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the prophet, uh, the servant of God. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, says God, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he's gone to take possession of it now that Naboth is dead. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, Yours, Ahab. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Well, history records that Elijah goes and he delivers this message and surprise of all surprises, it gets through for a moment to Ahab. And he, and he momentarily repents of what he's been doing and humbles himself before God. And it lasts about 10 minutes before he goes right back to his old ways again. And then God exacts the punishment that he's promised. And Ahab and Jezebel die in a gruesome way, too gruesome to even talk about here at church. You can read about it, it's in the Bible. Now, I know that a lot of us are uncomfortable with the notion of a punishing God. But God judges selfishness severely only because he is so very generous. God judges selfishness very severely because he is so generous. He views human selfishness as this offensive repudiation to the massive grace by which he has given and sustains all life. He is appalled by kids who get to the door on Halloween night, notice nobody else is around, seize the, the untended bowl that's been left out by the owners, and dump all of it into their bag. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like that. Especially when they're old enough to know better. God, God's sense of injustice is wracked by uncommonly, Blessed people and powerful people who do not, in turn, seek to bless and empower other people. God is upset by people who've been forgiven so much. But just hold grudges and can't seem to forgive. Even common things. The British scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, he says, God's wrath is rooted in his character as the good, wise, and loving creator. A creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. Right? Uh, puts down, if God does not hate racial prejudice, he's neither good nor loving nor wise. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation as an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows some people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, if he doesn't want to judge that, He is neither good, nor loving, nor wise. But God is all of these things. He's all of these things. And who God is is meant to shape you and me. So here's the big takeaway let's not be selfish. Let's not be envious. Let's not be greedy. Let's not let our lives be driven by discontentment. Because God is not. God is oh so generous. And so in gratitude for all that we have been given, let's you and I be really generous too.